play with your gutter mouth and me in an opium stupor. I'm sure this podcast is going to be a conversation for the ages. Well, I've been drunk for a while, so what the fuck is that to you? <laughs> well, you're in you're in for a treat because uh, this dope is making me quite randy, just like uh, Alma Garrett. So, <laughs> well, you better have a paying dwarf beneath you, Wes. <laughs> My notes for this show have now just completely turned into writing down quotes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a lot of mine are too, but uh, it's a uh, it's it's a difficult. There's not much. I mean, I write down the sort of the scenes, and I write down like the. Uh, the interactions of the characters, and then I write down some quotes too. But uh, this is Plague that we are about to get into. So we're going to take a quick break, play the music, and then we're going to come back and uh, break it down. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. All right, Plague is the sixth episode. We're halfway through the first season of Deadwood. It's called Plague. It's directed by Davis Guggenheim, written by Malcolm McRary. On the trail of the coward Jack McCall, Seth Bullock is ambushed by an Indian. Bullock kills the warrior. In Deadwood, a John falls ill at the gem. Doc Cochran tells Swearingen about the outbreak, but the news is kept quiet. Al confronts Trixie and makes it clear that she is to dope the widow or else. Trixie tells Alma to fake intoxication whenever Farnum shows up. Calamity Jane returns to Deadwood and explains that she's been caring for Kramed. Tension grows between Tolliver and Joni. Utter finds the injured Bullock. Bullock tells Utter about Hickok's death and presses him to carry the corpse of the Indian to its proper resting place. Deadwood's town leaders meet at the gym and decide to put together money to pay for the riders to get the smallpox vaccine. A plague tent is erected for the sick, staffed by Cochran, Reverend Smith, and Calamity Jane. So yeah, we're halfway through the first season at this point. Uh, the biblical plagues are upon us, but uh, not the ones that are carried by rats, as they talk about in this episode. Not the Sodom and Gomorrah that you want to be talking about. Not the rat plague, not the bubonic plague, but mm. smallpox is now officially broken out in Deadwood. Um, so what do you think about this one? Uh, I like this one. Um, this one also had a bit of... I don't want to call it wheel spinning to me, but it, it didn't have quite as much zip as some of the other ones did. Yep. Um, Similar to our I, last last week's episode, the trial. Yeah. Episode. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like uh, the the Bullock plot line felt really sort of jammed in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he literally gets knocked out for the whole episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Timing's a good, little you know, weird. It, it just it, like the um, this is the only episode I think that hasn't taken place the day after the previous episode. To this point, mm. a little bit of time has passed, um, and it's unclear how long Bullock is just laying on the ground after he has this fight with the Indian. I assume it's a a little bit of time, but maybe not days. But I don't know. Yeah, that's like that's really bad for you. I think to so just be out there in the cold. Yeah, having been knocked out. Yeah. Or well, I guess <laughs> lost, he sort of passed out. But. Lost a lot of blood. He, he's quite bloody yeah, from his bed. Not, not in a good way. Um, yeah, I, I liked it. I mean, it's. I think these characters are all super engaging, and so it's kind of, um, it's always fun to watch them do whatever they're doing, but it's it did feel a little bit, um, a, a bit of a, a dip for me on this one. Yeah. Uh, Plague is, we're halfway through the first season at this point. I think that... 
Um, listener Kyle was talking about how these episodes are defined at this point um, in terms of episodic storytelling and whether or not, like, I think that they actually tell concise stories within each of their episodes. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what you think about it. I, I think on this rewatch, at least, the storylines kind of blur together. But what the episodes of Deadwood do is that they do focus on a distinct idea in each of them. And mm-hmm. the plots kind of revolve around that. And they build off of each other. It's not like they're good, they go in totally different directions. But I think that the um, like the start and end points of the episodes are not quite as clear. Maybe this one is because they erect the plague tents and stuff like that. But I would say that like the um, the episode itself doesn't tell a completely, totally self-contained, pure little story that has like a, a you know a initiating action and then the like climbing action and the climax or whatever and then down or whatever. Right. It, right. It's more you do see a little bit of like a beginning and an end in it, but it's mostly about how the episode is exploring what the episode wants to be about, and I think that this one is mostly focused around Al's centering in terms of what he is representative for in the town, whether or not he is this sort of like crime boss figure who is trying to make everything out for himself or how he's gradually moving into more of a communal figure. And I think that everything else around him kind of contrasts with that in this episode. So you see him squarely in the middle of these decisions and he has actions that go on both sides of the coin for himself. And he's not even really actively um, thinking about it in those terms, but it's just the place that he finds himself at this point in the story. Yeah. Um, he he continues to be a, a very... Um, <clears throat> a character with, a, with quite a dichotomy to him because while he is a... Uh, um, craven murderous uh greedy shithead he also recognizes that somebody needs to take control of things in this town um and so i mean if you compare him to uh uh, cy tolliver tolliver's first uh instinct when the plague shows up is to try and hide it whereas when al finds out about it he walks right over to tolliver talks to him in the open gets gets answers from him about what's happening and then puts a group together to figure out how to deal with it for the town so like he's he's he understands that in order for him to continue to do what he does the town must not you know everybody can't die of smallpox yeah and so he is he positions himself as the person who is going to um guide the town because clearly nobody else is why do you hear on that back seat? He's had a case break out at his place. Let's go to the cage or shall the three of us leap up on tables and shout questions to one another across the room? What about the vaccine? The boy never made Nebraska. He took sick. Where is he now? We're back here. How the fuck long has that been? You don't want to pursue that, Tony. You sat on news no one went after the medicine. I'm asking the duration. I'm saying questions in that tone and pointing your finger at me will get you told to fuck yourself. Show me the room where the boy is. Yeah, Swearingen finds himself, um, he is, like, you bring up Psy. I I think Psy is clearly positioned to be, like, the worst case Swearingen personality. He's the, Mm -hmm. 
He's like the he's the the bad version of Swearingen in a way. And what's interesting is like whether or not if Powers Booth had stayed in that role, would Swearingen have just kind of stuck to that darkness side of things? Mm. Um, the, the, the when when Swearingen, as you're saying, goes over and confronts I about like tell us where the rider went and like how, how, where the where the outbreak of smallpox is coming from, and Tolliver has the. Uh, the great line asking questions in that tone and pointing your finger at me will get you told to fuck yourself, <laughs> which is, um, which is pretty much size whole point of view. Like size continued to be portrayed as a, not a very nice person in this show. Um, mm. he kind of has a coming to terms with Swearingen over the course of this one, just because Al doesn't sell him out to everybody else by saying that he had been covering up the outbreak for a little bit of time. So he has that line about like, I'm glad you didn't put the stink on me with everybody else. But in all of his other uh, conversations and interactions, he's really turning out to be kind of a, a shit heel with uh, his interaction with, with Joni. And then he threatens um, Eddie, Eddie Sawyer, his like mm-hmm. card sharp, um, and is generally unpleasant to everybody else. But he's like, he he's, you know, they, they show here in the, the, uh, the town hall scene that he's bought land unbeknownst to everybody else. So, like he's bought lots in the town for mm. the building towards the future. And uh, now gives them a little bit of like the balls on this guy to do that. But the difference between them is just that, you know, I, I think it's interesting because Swearingen isn't even really having a conflict within himself about what's going on, but he is gradually, he, he's more aware of the fact that they, the town isn't going to survive unless something larger comes into play outside of just his own criminality running the town and things like that. Like his, his mob boss control is not enough to stop the bigger threats to the camp at this point. And the, the biggest threat so far is this plague that's come in smallpox. Yeah. Al is, is weirdly more compassionate than Tolliver is. Yeah. Even though he's equally as shitty, but Tolliver is a lot colder than than al is al al in his own way has this weird compassion about him um i probably best articulated in the in the contrasting scenes of tolliver with Joni, who's his number two in the way that he treats her and al with the blonde prostitute trixie Uh, sorry the redhead no not trixie the redhead who thinks she has smallpox oh i I would even compare it with the because both are um because Al threatens Trixie in that scene too, when she when he's trying to figure out if she's giving the dope to the widow. That's true. Yeah, and and I think that the relationship between those two is more similar than I, I know what you're saying when he's talking to the the redheaded prostitute. Um, the redheaded prostitute scene to me is a very good example because it perfectly encapsulates like where he finds himself, which is that he's 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 cruel to that the whore. But he also is kind of kind to her at the same time. It's this really delicate right. balancing act of like, he's like, well, I can't kick the shit out. Like, I can't, you know, every other guy in here might have gotten uh, smallpox from drinking from the glass the same way that you were making out with that that John, but I can't kick the shit out of them and tell them to get back to work. But then he just, you know, she has the heartbreaking thing about like her mother died when they were coming out of smallpox and her father had to sell the kids to into, into prostitution, basically. Right, yeah. And his response is like he gets he's clearly affected by it. He tries to pass it off and then just gives her the he says like you just have to give hand jobs for a day or two and we'll see where it goes from there, which is his own nice way of uh, being gentle on her, I suppose. You better have a paying dwarf underneath you. 
Am I dying? Turn off the fucking water and tell me what you did. No, you didn't fuck him. No. You suck his prick? He didn't want to show it to me till he had a heart on. That's what you call a mistake of use. You muck it up with him? A little. French like or normal? Normal. So any hooplehead who drank from the same glass this guy did it have as much right to sit there weeping as you, except I can't kick his ass and send him out to work. My mom died of it when we was coming out. And that's when Daddy gave us up. <laughs> well, that sad story makes me believe maybe you was exposed and ain't a candidate for it no more. Stick the hand jobs for day or two if you like. Yeah, it's like when Mr. Scrooge allows one more piece of coal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's that's, from the from the bottom of his heart. That's the best he's, he's willing to do. It is. He, he's but Tolliver, on the other hand, starts off kind of. You think that he's talking to Joni in that scene where she's in her bedroom, as if he is becoming softer, and then ends it with the harshest line of the interaction, which is like, "This is the way I'd like to touch you. Don't make me do another another way." Yeah. Um. So they are. They have a they they have a like really a really different personality difference there where Al is much more sympathetic than Tolliver is. Tolliver Tolliver is the closest thing I think the show has to a sociopath so far. Yeah, um, like he's yeah. unrelatable to everybody else. <clears throat> I would say that the difference with the, with the scene with Al and Trixie though is that when Al has his mind set on a thing. It's it's sort of like it doesn't matter who's in front of him. He's going to run through them. And like that's one of those scenes where he has a very specific outcome in mind that it's just the people who are working for him who are going to fuck it up. Yeah. Um, do you think he doubts? Do you think he believes Trixie or he doubts her? Because my, I, I see that scene as development, which is that Al does not believe what Trixie is telling him. Yeah. But he is he's becoming more gentle and... Her, like the storyline clearly between Trixie and Al is that Trixie is breaking away from Al over the course of these episodes, mm. and he's not—he's not doing the side Tolliver thing of like trying to hold her back in in that way, you know. So there's like a there's an emotional difference there where Al is kinder to Trixie at this point. Where in the first episode, because I don't believe that Al believes her, and if he was living up to his with the way there was in the uh, the first episode, he'd probably just kick the shit out of her in this one. Yeah, and she yeah. is. She's nervously like fidgeting with something the entire scene. The camera closes in. So she's nervous yeah, about yeah. what's going on. But he, and unless you disagree that Al doesn't realize what it is, that's my take on why um, that scene goes the way it is. Is that because Al is changing in a way that Tolliver is not changing? Yeah. I would also say, though, that he's playing it similar to the way he plays with Farnham when mm-hmm. he finds Farnham is. Um, in the second episode or third episode, when he finds out that Farnham is is uh, yeah the burn it all down scene, you got to run it running in, yeah running info over onto the uh, over to the uh, to Cy Tolliver's place where yeah. he he's telling he's 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 given the two sides of it where he's telling Farnham to keep his eyes and ears open, but he's also telling somebody else to watch Farnham. Yeah, although I think he, it's a similar thing with because he says that he. Gibbs tells Farnham to basically 
check up on what Trixie's saying. But yeah, I think he's being a little lax with her in well, a way well, that Farnham, maybe he wouldn't with somebody else. Yeah, far, yeah, I, I would agree. Because Farnham, the reason Al doesn't go farther into like violence with Farnham is that Farnham convinces him of something which is that mm-hmm. like you can't just you can't just burn everything down because what else are you going to have at that point right, right trixie doesn't really give him anything that causes him to change his mind i don't think in that scene true. it's it's true. just a he's kind of questioning her he's raising his eyebrow at her like why aren't you paying more attention and then he just gives her explicit directions of like you have to go behind the curtain and see what she does and then we'll go from there but Al, him, Al himself isn't even really checking up on Alma, you know? It, it leads you to right, wonder yeah. what, what he even thinks about any. He sends EB all the time to go and check on her, but, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's one of those things, too, where it's like, at this specific point in time, how much does he really care about that? <laughs> he's yeah. got a lot of other stuff he's dealing with. <laughs> That's true. It, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a mild issue, a mild thorn in his side. You think he'd Which, you know, is it, funny, too, because... As far as EB is concerned, this is like his number one priority. Yeah. And he is, he has another little kind of talking to himself bit of monologue where he's cursing Al. Um, and I'm sure to Al, it's just like one of 14 fires he's trying to contain Yeah, uh, at the same time. I love that Farnham scene. It's Are you talking about the one where he's... Um walking back from the gym through yes. the thoroughfare and he's like he's yeah. yelling at everybody who gets in his way he's talking about how al is a cue ball and he's just a regular billiard ball that reacts to what the cue ball does it's, it's mm. just it's interesting and clever but he's like no deceit too prolonged no errand too demeaning get out of here no rebuke too vile al swearagen's a cue and for him merely is billiard ball Shit. Sanderson is just so funny in that role. He's just like yelling at the horses that are walking in front of him and he walks back. Yeah. He's so good in yeah. this show. Like uh, he's doing kind of the same thing that he always does, but he's he's doing it with a character that's really, really interesting. And uh <clears throat> I like I can't even I don't know if I've ever seen anything else aside from Blade Runner, that gives him this much screen time mm-hmm. and gives him this much to do. And he's really nailing it. He's, I think E.B. E. and Jane, I think, are my two favorite characters in the show. Yeah, Farnham. Farnham's <clears throat> performance and characterization is funny. He's um, He also doesn't say a lot in the town hall scene, but he has two great scenes where he... Al says a joke and he laughs a little bit too hard. Yes. At it. yes. <laughs> and then the other one is when they're giving out the money and he says like 200 and Al just goes, are you fucking kidding me? Evie? And 50. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's, um, it's a good performance. He's very funny. He plays off. Um, he plays off Swearingen. Well, uh, he plays off everybody well, but he, he's just so pathetic and, uh, the way he speaks is very because he, he's he's probably second most like twistedly verbose in relation to Swearingen. Like Swearingen is clearly the character who talks the most and has the most sort of um, unclear speech, which is always a running joke that EB has to like say the thing that he said in different words to try to figure out what he's talking yeah. about. But mm-hmm. Farnham himself is very has an interesting style of dialogue too, especially when he's speaking to himself in that way. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so fun 
because he's the only person that kind of has this weird external monologue. Yeah. Um, and it's such a great character to choose because he like, you know, we throw around the word Shakespearean quite a bit, but he's almost like a parody of a Shakespearean character. He's like a guy who thinks that he's Iago, but he's not even close to being as smart as right. Iago is. Yeah. And so to give him <clears throat> this sort of disposition where he's going to walk out in a huff and start shit talking and scheming in a way that's just kind of <laughs> ridiculous to listen to is yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's um he's kind of similar to Jane in that sense in that no one takes him particularly seriously. Like no one listens yeah. to him as he's wandering around and th- this one has another sequence of an extended sequence of cuz Jane returns to the camp from being out with Andy Kramed in this one and she's kind of yelling at everybody as she's walking through the town going to Doc Cochran's office and no one pays any attention to what she's doing. Um yes, the whole time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's she continues to be great. Like she's She's just so self-conscious and and overcorrects so hard in the other direction for no reason. Yeah. That it's just like I don't know how a person actually functions in the world like that. Yeah, she just has to find the right people. She has an extended scene with Cochran, which is built around that. She has she, Yeah. Ain't you wise as a fucking owl. <laughs> <laughs> I really I really like that scene because um Jane is someone who up to this point hasn't really had a purpose like you know and i don't mean like narratively i mean like in her life mm-hmm. um the closest thing she has to a purpose is bill yeah and then bill gets taken away from her and then that scene with with the doctor it really sort of like helps put her on a track to actually do something useful with her life. Yeah, it kind of highlights um, that she had the girl for a little bit too, but she gave right. up the girl. Yeah. Yeah, it it's 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 a it's a really nice scene and it's it's a it's a it's a masterclass on how to write sort of a sentimental scene with two characters who are anything but sentimental. Yeah. 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 They, they they do have they share a lot of uh good dialogue with it. He asks her like how her drinking is going and then says if you were a farmer I'd ask how the farming was going. Yeah. Um yeah, they 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 antagonize each other, uh, but they are sort of kindred spirits at the same time. Um and she she Cochran enlists Jane because she can't get sick from smallpox, it seems, to help with the uh taking care of the sick, which is another just building on that theme of the female characters are largely becoming the centers of care for everybody else. And mm-hmm. um you know, Joni's trying to and this one, Joni starts to feel bad for Ellsworth, who's having this con run on him, and she's trying to get him to walk away from the craps table, which is what upsets uh, Tolliver about her. Almost yeah. trying to be taken care of by Trixie to get clean of the dope, um, which is a running thing throughout the episode. And then Jane eventually becomes the sort of nurse, nurse chapel character, if you will, of um, of Deadwood, as she's going to start taking care of everybody who got sick with the smallpox. I wish Nurse Chapel talked like Jane. It'd be a little bit more interesting of a character, more yeah. memorable. <laughs> Jane Captain, is you track order. <laughs> Captain, you expect me to go down to that planet with those fucking rock <laughs> cucksuckers? <clears throat> you can go fuck yours. <laughs> you keeping doc? You keeping your sister, your daughter in the cocksucking <laughs> emergency transporter? 
<laughs> she'd have some things to say about the ugly aliens in this one. She said she's called some guy like some ugly butt fucker like you or something. <laughs> say that to the Cardassians or something like that. I think it would work. That mug on me, I believe I'd cut down and get told how butt-fucking ugly I was by not staring at fucking strangers. Yeah, and so I think it's just a, you know, the the show is further developing this idea that something is happening um, in the town. They're going to have to respond to it. Uh, I think the show excels in the small moments. Like, there's the small runner of Al wants fruit for the meeting. Yes. And that's such a relatable thing too. Cause like if you've ever, if you've ever gotten like a a job from a, a a parent, like an angry parent or like an angry boss, that's like an ill-defined job. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, I really want to do this right. But I really can't ask him any, him or her any questions about the specifics. So I'm just going to have to have to try to, nail this on my own yeah johnny doesn't know how much fruit to buy how many people are going to be at the meeting yeah and then kind of comically i don't think anyone eats the fruit at the end by the end of the episode so it was all for not yeah i think just al i think al's the only one yeah he takes a bite i guess and then um smith has his uh seizure yeah i guess and um just for the context you know at this point in time canning was still kind of considered like a a miss like a magical technology that they were having mm. so it, it would make sense that their peaches and pears would be canned and they would be considered a delicacy but on the um i just think it's nice because like on a thematic level it shows how it, it's weird because it's like the sweetness of the fruit pairs against how seriously they're treating it because they stop drinking to talk about it and they eat fruit instead which is right. a, a nice little metaphor about like how seriously they consider the problem which is that they're going to stop drinking uh to the point of drunkenness and actually have some nourishment to see how they want to get through this uh, situation. Um, but they, they didn't bring up uh, any cinnamon spice at this point. But yeah, that and you know, the other, the thing that pairs it off against all of that is just Bullock off on the path to sh- fucking Cheyenne um, yeah. where he runs into I, Charlie Otter. I'll be honest. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought that juxtaposed against everything else that was happening in this episode the bullock stuff was ridiculous okay like he's he's so over like intensely over the top angry and like and i I know he's trying to find someone who killed this to kill bill and all this kind of stuff but it's like it, it you really mean after is, he gets attacked he's angry or just like as he's riding off he's angry yeah, yeah just in general like the, I, I it just there's there's something about that stuff that was like juxtaposed against an actual like problem of society. It just kind of felt, uh, I don't know what the word, it felt kind of childish. I don't mean like the writing was bad or anything, but yep. like from Bullock's perspective, that stuff felt a little bit kind of childish to me, I guess. I think that's the point actually is that i wouldn't be surprised if it is yeah. yeah things only start to come together once someone as stubborn as seth bullock gets out of the way a little bit yeah yeah because i um i i sort of get the, like i sort of get the bullock stuff i'm not sure it's 100 percent um necessary but i i think the most the, the importance of that stuff really just comes from the fact that he is separated and he's no longer there and 
it, it maybe it's enough just because he has his little interaction with Charlie Utter about it, and Charlie starts sort of linking the Bill being killed to this Indian being killed, and like yeah. the, the rage comes out at that point and stuff like that. And they do the they do the right thing. So I think thematically it sort of ties into like Bullock is coming to his senses after this attack and he, you know, he buries the Indian the way that I'm not entirely sure what was going on with the Indian. Was he burying another guy or what was going on? So whatever their funerary rites are, which apparently seems to be putting the body, like lifting it up to the spirits or something. Yeah. Putting it on top of the hill. Yeah. Yeah. He had done that to the guy who had his head cut off. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I didn't... At the end, when they put him up there, I was like, oh, they didn't really do a good job of getting him on there. But then they, they like, kind of moved the... Ca- it's hard to see, but the he- the headless body is next to him. Oh, So, gotcha. basically, he was, like, sitting Shiva with his dead friend or something when Bullock came through. And then so they put him up there with... With him. With the... Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and and that because that makes Charlie Utter's uh, conversation a little bit more sense because he he starts ranting about like he's out there with his friend, and I always thought he was just talking about Bullock or um, Hickok and sort of getting confused about what he was angry about. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, it's funny too. Like, it's interesting that they that they're the where Charlie and and Seth kind of have their difference in that moment is that. Uh, Charlie wants to get going. Seth wants to dig this guy a grave. And then it doesn't become a question of, no, we're not going to do that. Charlie goes into, like, knowing what the funerary rites are Yeah, for the Sioux or whoever it's supposed to be. I can't remember. It'd be the Lakota, I think. Lakota? Yeah. Yeah. and and so then it becomes like, well, if we're gonna do it, we should do it right and not do it how you think it should be done. So it's right. it's a it's a weird it's a it's a it's an interesting shift. We should dig a grave. I'd as soon not waste the fucking time. It won't take long. You ain't doing him no favor. I mean, his way to heaven's above ground and looking west. Well, let's do that then. Don't you want to take him over the ridge, this fucking holy ground, and put him up there with his headless buddy? I mean, that's what you nearly got killed for. Interfering with his big fucking medicine, burying his fucking buddy over the fucking ridge. Yeah, it's, um, because I would agree, I, I think it takes a decent amount of time. Um, I'm also, just on like a, on a purely technical level, I'm not entirely, like that, that Indian missed a layup. At the, at, during that oh, fight, oh, definitely, scene. <laughs> yeah, no, he spiked, he spiked the ball at the one yard line, big time. <laughs> even it's not even he allows Bullock to grab his legs twice. It's not even like yeah. the first time he gets him by surprise and trips him. He knocks him off the first time, and then Bullock just does the same thing, and the the guy just lets him do it again and rant, run him into a tray. Yeah, yeah, he had that one. That was he didn't. That was an L that he had coming. I think. <laughs> yeah, because Charlie. Charlie does a little bit of explaining about like the markings on the horse represent the guy's like basically like notches on his bedpost of how many white men he's killed. Yeah. And uh, I guess they get special points if they club them. And that's what he was. That's what he was doing. So he, when he rode up to Bullock, instead of shooting him with the arrow, he ran like rode by on horse and hit him with his uh, like rifle butt or something. 
and knocks him down, and that's why he has to taunt him a little bit, I guess, at that point. But yeah, I think that guy uh, was from the Seahawks tribe. That's a- <laughs> that's a that's a Patriots joke for all you Bostonians. <laughs> it wouldn't 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 uh, wouldn't surprise me. But I think that's the only um, that's the only native we see for the rest of the series. I think it's just this really one, yeah. I think it's just this one little uh, that's interesting. Sequence. Man, those horses looked awesome. <clears throat> like once, when sense? he was ex- like it was just the the paint and stuff was really oh cool. the, yeah the, his painted horse would the um especially when he was explaining what everything meant I was like oh that's pretty rad yeah yeah you go back and, <laughs> and the, the horse the horse looked a little embarrassed actually to be painted painted up I think but he kept calling him <laughs> a pony too I don't know what the technical distinction is between a pony and a horse would um would a horse die from being shot with an arrow like that. I mean, if 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 it got shot in the side and then its rider passed out for eight hours, probably. <laughs> the horse goes down pretty quick. It seems the bullock is uh, no spring chicken either, but he's 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 at least trying to trying to fight back a little bit. I was surprised. I thought that the horse went down pretty quick, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, back in town, Alma's detoxing. Trixie's with her. The uh, the Mets girl is learning how to speak English by singing "Row Row Row Your Boat" over mm-hmm. and over again. Um, Alma tricks Eb into thinking that she is back on the dope by, by acting by acting lusty in front of him, and Eb is a little bit distracted. He has some funny line about like uh, she's she's like puffing out her chest, doing all sorts of manner of things or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, and then that's I guess that's pretty much it. They build the the sick tent. Oh, the Reverend has his uh, seizure, I guess, is the other big thing that happens mm. in this one. Um, any thoughts on the Reverend and his, and his seizing? And Al's response to it, too, which is the other key part of it. Yeah, that's another 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 little bit of, of character work for him where you find out that he had a sister who brother. was epileptic. Brother. brother yeah. um, that he knows he knows how to handle it, and which, which it's... It's another thing that it's a little bit, it's a little piece, but it goes a long way to humanize him, you know? Yeah. He gives him a nice little, um, when the doc is checking out Reverend Smith, Al comes in and says, give this malingerer a can of peaches and tell him to fuck off and then winks at him. It's probably the the nicest moment uh, that he's had with anybody in general. He seems, he has a bond with Smith um, is the point of what they're trying to say through his uh, relationship to knowing that his brother had the same thing, suffered from seizures and they, they like, you know, it, it speaks to the town hall effect is that they even invited him to it in the first place because he, he does represent that kind of pillar of the community thing, but he's not someone that you would think of immediately to solve the smallpox problem. Yeah. He's, um, doesn't even have I was a little bit su- in the, in the, right. in the scene. I was a little bit surprised that he did get invited because it doesn't seem like something uh, Al would go out of his way to include. No, just um, just thematics, I guess, right? Like the church is going to be part of some sort of, or faith or whatever, however you want to view it, is going to be part of um, this development that they're doing. And yeah, they, yeah, they're, like, what do you think? Like, is this an extremely religious show? Um. Well, what's its take on religion? I think its take on religion is that whether or not you believe it, 
it is acknowledging that it is culturally important. Yeah. Because I think I think that's Al's angle with it is like, you know, he probably thinks it's bullshit, but he realizes that he he is he's preparing in a way differently than Cy Tolliver's preparing, right? Like he's he's really um he's really impressed by Cy's ability to to think towards the future. Like oh, good in a point. Business yeah. sense, but, but yeah, like buying the actual property and stuff like that, and he's and Al's yeah. having a different tack on it. Yeah, yeah. And what Al, what Al is thinking two moves ahead on is what the what the place is going to look like from like a societal civilization angle. Yeah, because those are the he he's counting on the people to be there to pay him money to do what he does, and so if he's it's i think it's just showing that he's aware of what makes up a functioning town because like who else does he bring in he brings in the newspaper guy yeah right and so and like i think i think it's a uh, the end of of the news i love the newspaper sequence by the way that yeah. was hilarious <laughs> i think the end of the end of that sequence <clears throat> or uh the 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 tag the, at the end once the paper comes out I also really enjoy Al pointing out what his contributions to the article were. It's <laughs> <Which is> really <laughs> funny. It's um Milch doesn't seem to have a very high opinion of journalism if you yeah, take this show. Not. Yeah, because it's like the guy basically gets dictated what the story is by other outside parties and mm-hmm. the 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 newspaper man is just kind of a drunk uh for the rest of it just like getting back into drinking and also being I think another big theme about Merrick is that like Merrick's Merrick's interesting. If it is intentional, you know, Merrick is a highly educated character who doesn't swear like the other characters do. His language is different. And he's also incredibly naive about everything that goes yeah. on. Like he's educated, but he doesn't seem to know how the world works. And uh, Al dictating the newspaper story to him is like a perfect example of that. And I, I, you wonder how much Milch actually views like the journalism in general under this kind of light, or if he's just making an example of this guy. Two cases of the smallpox have been diagnosed in our camp by Dr. Amos Cochran. Hey, Doc. Get the Amos out of there. Scratch Amos. Dr. Cochran's suggestion, a pest tent endowed by the generous retailers of our fine community, is being erected for the afflicted on the south end and riders dispatched to secure a vaccine. Maybe you should add there, they're already probably on their way back. The pioneer has been assured of their imminent return. That's cashier. Thanks also to the aforementioned merchants, the vaccine will be distributed gratis. Free gratis. Free gratis is a redundancy. Does that mean repeats itself? They'll leave gratis out. What luck for me, Al, that you have such a keen editorial sense. Free. Distributed free. Period. But uh, the, the, uh, the thing that I think stands out from the the tag of that whole sequence is when uh Al is talking to Dan about the free gratis thing. Yeah. Where where Al recognizes that you need to speak to people you need to speak to the people of the town in a language that they understand. Yeah. And what they understand is 
a base, more base than the business of Cy Tolliver or the school learning of yeah. of Merrick, you know? What's that so line he, he says? He, he says, he says? I can't remember exactly what yeah, the line is, yeah, but it's, it's good. Pioneer is assured of their imminent return. I'll believe it when I see it. Imminent return is one of my contributions to the fucking article, the idea for that phrase. Pest tent being erected at the south. What about that fucking Tolliver buying up property on the QT, huh? Looked like he was struggling with his shit when he made the offer to loan out the lot. Now, nonetheless, it says the man sees the fucking possibilities of things. I mean, to come up at this fucking juncture with the idea of creating an emporium for the fucking chinks takes brass fucking balls and a long-term vision for the future. Merrick. Merrick wanted to put here gratis. Now, is the idea to inform your reader and make him feel like a fucking dunce, huh? I had to put free. I don't see why the fuck he doesn't have news of the baseball. That new league started the team in Chicago. Different path taken, and certain forks in the road. Who knows what kind of joint we'd be in now, huh? Of course, truth is, as a base of operations, you cannot beat a fucking saloon. Yeah, to tie it in, it's another knock on Merrick. It's like, are you supposed to... Are you supposed to impress your reader or inform them is kind of the general gist of what uh, the complaint is about that free gratis thing. And it's it, it comes off as Al looking like a dimwit at first because he says something, something will be offered gratis. And he says free gratis. And then Merrick is like, well, that's redundant. You're right. <clears throat> and then Al goes, well, then just put free. Right. <laughs> and it, and it, yeah. it makes it makes Al seem like like a dimwit until he explains himself at the end of the episode where it's like, oh, OK. I mean, sure, he's not the most uh, educated person there is, but yep. it's not like he's just picking that because it's the only word that he knows. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a, um, you know, I, I think the show uh, fairly consistently makes the distinction between educated and intelligent, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like the the educated characters, I guess, would be considered like the New Yorkers and Merrick to this point, like the Garretts and Merrick. Um, and they generally aren't really portrayed as very intelligent. They might know a lot, and Merrick's vocabulary is fairly impressive, but they they end up not really understanding what the situation is that's going around. And Brom gets easily conned into a a con that ends up with him getting killed, and Merrick just can't figure out how to communicate simple information to a group of uh, prospectors in the Midwest. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think Al is is just is becoming a very I'm. I'm curious to see how things are going to shake out for Tolliver because I almost feel like Tolliver's purpose is to allow Al to become a more uh, well-rounded, complicated character. Yeah. Um, but I mean, maybe they do the same thing to him as it goes on because he's not—he's not quite as interesting as Al. He doesn't have quite as many facets as Al does. No, he's fairly sing- uh, single-minded and stuff, and also like the. The just based on like uh, the staff of the Bella Union versus the Gem, the Gem workers seem in general happier than the Bella Union folks do. You know, mm, um, like yeah. Joni and Eddie Sawyer aren't particularly happy. Um, there's the 
the there's one of the whores at the Bella Union is very concerned about the kid who gets smallpox, like the who was supposed to go off to Montana or Nebraska, mm-hmm. wherever he was supposed to go. Yeah, and yeah, like the gem is much more of a family where the Bella Union feels like a business with an incredibly hostile boss at the top yeah. of it, and no one feels comfortable yeah. in it. Um, I don't know if you think there's anything else going on with them, but the the distinction between the two is funny because the gem is always portrayed as like the dirtier, grubbier version of it, and that like you would want to aspire to be at the Bella Union, but the Bella Union seems much more negative than the gem does, unless family like. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, um, I think it's a, it's a totally purposeful contrast to have the gem, which looks like the more shit kicking place. Actually, I mean, I don't want to say it's the better place to work. You leave every day with a smile. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like if you, uh, I mean, I, I, I think another comparison you could use with the way that Al treats the uh, the redhead is there's a similar kind of sequence with Psy with a, another whore who is also a redhead where he kind of basically says he treats her a lot less compassionately than Al does. Yes, yeah. She's the one who is crying about the kid with smallpox, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's uh, What do you think's going on with Joni? Uh, I can't really, I can't really track exactly what, what do you her think thing of, is. What do you think of that actress's performance? I like her. Um, I think she's, I think she's pretty good. Um, but I'm not. I just, I'm not. I guess the thing I'm not getting from her is I'm not totally sure what is supposed to be going on with her. Like I thought the crap scene was a little bit difficult to track. Yeah, probably because I don't understand how craft works, <laughs> and like it's all, it's all Joni basically. Um, they're they're trying to run a game on what's his name, Ellis Ellsworth, Ellsworth, not Ellis from Die Hard. No. He would be good. He would be good. Be- <laughs> um, he shows up in season three. I'm sure. Al, Bubby. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But, you know, they're trying to run a game on Ellsworth and she kind of backs him off of it. And it's like it's not like they don't go out of their way on the show to explain to you the game that they're running. They just they're just showing you that Cy is mad because she's not doing it right. Yeah. The show is pretty like it's kind of um, I don't know how to describe it. The show is fairly subtle with things. We've talked about this before. Um, I always. It always takes me a little bit of extra brain spinning to realize that uh, they're playing with loaded dice in the crap scenes, and that like yeah, the, the, there's you know, it's such a quick shot at the beginning. It when, is when uh, yeah. Ricky Jay comes over and he's already got a pair of dice in his hands. Yeah, it's the, like a very quick quick shot. They hammer it home a little bit more, but it's still subtle where they don't mention it. But he's practicing playing with right. two sets of dice later yeah. on in the, in the episode. Did I tell you about? Um, one of my friends sent me a video of a of a professional card cheat. Um, it was one of those like Variety or Esquire videos or something where it's like a professional singer looks at the singing scenes from these movies, right? And it was a professional card cheat looking at the different um, 
movies that have like card cheating scenes in them, like yep. the Rounders or Ocean's Eleven or something like that. Yeah, this guy was unbelievable. Like he was going through all these different ways that you could switch out dice and stuff, or like cut cards the, a specific way, or deal from the bottom of the deck. Yeah, and it's like he, not in a million years, would you know that he was doing it? It was really impressive to watch. Yeah, there was um, there's some YouTube channel that has a guy who does sort of like. Uh, card shenanigans maybe it's the same one but he he does things like dealing from the bottom of the deck and when people get good at that stuff you just don't notice it unless you're looking for it it's really pretty impressive uh sleight of hand type stuff um for for the ellsworth scene i mean Joni is Joni is getting at least a little twinge of conscience like i think that you know that scene is supposed to show that she's the one that actually feels bad for people like ellsworth who are being brought into this uh, crooked game where they're just going to you know, it's not good enough that the house always wins. It's that Tolliver wants the house to win even faster in these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she feels bad about that. And I think that Ricky, uh, Eddie Sawyer is kind of similar in that way, too, which is that they're both being driven by Cy to do these things. And I think that like it, mostly I, what I take Joni's point to be is that in that scene where she's in her bedroom with talking to Tolliver, they, he talks to her about like why why does why doesn't she embrace this new start that they've got where they used to it sounds like they were on the mississippi or something doing like a, a boat tour river boat river yeah, boat river, gambling river boat gambling um that'll be the prequel series to deadwood yeah how come we've how come they've never done a show about a river boat gambling thing was there maybe there was one in the 70s that was like love boat esque or something but <laughs> a hard hard tv ma series about river boat gambling that's what i want to see next it's it's hard not to bring uh, like Huck Finn comparisons, yeah. then I think yeah, you just you'll start running into uh, you run start running into uncomfortable territory, I guess. Uh, too many too many n words for modern television. <laughs> I think, if they're trying to be historically let's, accurate, let's get more cocksuckers in this show. I think that that'll work. <laughs> um, That's what I've been saying, Brandon. <laughs> what the fuck's wrong with you? I don't know. Well, you better figure it the fuck out, Joni. Because this free ride shit's coming to a quick fucking halt. Free ride? What would you call it? I earned my way. <laughs> How? Posing in expensive dresses and breaking up the cat fights? Taking trouble to steer the trade? Now don't pay the freight, honey. You're here to create a fucking atmosphere. Fucking atmosphere you create lately. I'm sad. Then on your bad days, oh, I'm so sad. What is it, sweetheart? Guess it's coming here. What's wrong with coming here? You never liked the river that much. What's wrong with a fresh start? How it feels when there isn't one. Oh, shit. Stay here, I'll bring you back a fucking lollipop. Sorry, I cracked on your play with the prospector. Me and Eddie turned it into a longer campaign. He don't get plague, it'll all have a happy end. My worries you. And my concerns and feelings of fucking affection. Shut up, Sai. Work on believing it, Joni. Uh, and Joni is just, I think Joni's just tired of, 
she never gets a fresh start and is tired of this era. And I yeah. think we talked about it last episode. I'm still unclear about what the relationship is between the two of them because Sai has yeah. a line where he's like, my affections for you, and then he touches her face. Well, yeah, I was. I assumed that was just like pimp talk, you know? Okay. Uh, he doesn't was, mean like romantic affection. He just means like my care for you. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, the th- the kind of thing where it's like... Baby. <laughs> yeah, after you smack him around and then it's like, you know I love you, like that kind right. of bullshit that's just really gaslighting and fucks him up. Yeah. But it's, works, I think works, she... Works quite well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clay, I got three kids out of that. I, I, can't, I can't deal from the bottom of the uh, the stack, but I can smack, <laughs> smack home. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I think she's an interesting counterpoint to, to Trixie because like... Trixie on the surface is the more indentured servant of the two. Yeah. Who seems to be in the worst situation. And I mean, I think it's arguable that she is. But, um, and the way they present Joni is she, it almost seems like, it almost seems like Joni graduated out of being a, 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 a whore on the floor, if you yes. will. Yes. And is more of like a, a, a booth My babe. favorite bass drum rhythm is the, the whore, whore on the, the floor. <laughs> They used it all the time in the Motown stuff in the 60s. Um, but it's almost like she graduated to being like a booth babe where she's yeah. just there to bring people in and she's glad not actually. Glad handsome, yeah, it makes them, yeah, she's yeah, yeah. not Because I was actually, in the scene with Ellsworth at the bar, I was trying to figure out, it's like, is she available? Like, is is she? Oh, could he get her services, you mean? yeah. Because I thought that's sort of what was going on. Because I really love the exchange between them when he's talking about. He's like, "What does he say?" He says, uh, "I have a, I have a uh, uh, work in gold mine, a work in a work in gold, gold claim. claim." Yeah. And then she says something, and he's like, "I would have said, fuck it. I would have thrown. <laughs> he's, oh, he says, I would have thrown a fucking in there if I was in different company." And yeah. she said, "I, I, I would catch that fucking." <laughs> And then he says, a work in fucking gold claim. And then he says, I appreciate you giving me, uh, allowing me the breath of my full expression. Yeah, or my, my, like my full, the full range of my expression. Yes. <laughs> Which is really funny. Uh, but like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I, I get the sense that she's sort of like the, uh, uh, the, the door, the girl at the door. Yes. Who's. She's worked bringing, herself up from the bottom. Yeah. is my understanding. Yeah, as well. and and yeah. I and I and, and to contrast with Trixie, I think she is almost more. I, she seems like more of a captive and more depressed about her situation than Trixie is. Yes, which is interesting because I mean, I guess it's all. Uh, <laughs> Everybody's point of view is different, I guess. But. Yeah, I, I think the show is fairly consistent in that it's a state of mind rather than a state of situation. Sure, is what sure. what drives yeah. people. So it's like the better situation would clearly be the one who doesn't have to suck dick all day and can just glad hand <laughs> people and, you know, wear pretty dresses and hang out at the craps table. And Trixie's in a worse position, but Trixie has a better situation in that Al seems to be a, you know, relatively a better person than Tolver is. And Joni feels much more pathetically trapped than Trixie does mm-hmm. like Trixie feels like she has a little bit more free range, even though there's not much of a difference there. But she's through her mission to dope up Alma, she's breaking even further away from Al right, because yeah. she's getting out of the gem, literally. Where it was at the previous episode when um, Joni went off to the 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 funeral, and Sai was like, 
you, so I was talking about that whole thing about like did she ask permission and stuff to go yeah. out where Trixie doesn't really need that in, in the same way. Yeah, yeah, I think they do a really nice job of um, of uh, using these sort of doubles that they've set up in the show. Yeah, a lot of contrasting doubles. them. Yeah. yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, and contrasting them in in really interesting ways uh, without putting too fine a point on things. You know. No, like this. Yeah, thankfully, there's no point where where Cy goes over to the gem and he's like, you know, Al, you and I were a lot alike. You know, they never they never do that bullshit or anything. Yeah, yeah. just Spider Man pointing at himself memes yeah. just endlessly. Um, no, because they Except they could it's not webs he shoot. <laughs> they they could frozen ropes. They could they could um do a lot worse in that way of uh. Like I, I, anytime that I think the show is too subtle, I all I always kind of feel that I'm just not picking up what it's putting down effectively. Mm-hmm. There might be a couple scenes where I, I feel a little bit different about that. Like the, I I'm still not hundred percent sure what the Andy Kramed relationship is with everybody else. Like, right? It yeah. seems like he's a real close person, but we didn't really have any interaction that explained that and stuff like that. But most of it is just um. It's there. It's just the characters don't talk about it uh, very obviously. They'll talk about it in kind of roundabout ways and sort of touch on the edges of things, but they'll never, as you're saying, Cy Tolliver and Al will never have a, just like a, a winking scene where they're just like looking at each other, knowing exactly what the other one is doing or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I appreciate that they are a lot of times giving you exposition that uh, is not television writing exposition it's two people in the world talking to each other as they would in the real world yeah yeah and so they're they're not counting on you to be up to speed but they're also not leaving stuff up they're not they're not leaving stuff out that would prevent you from getting up to speed it's just like you have to think about it a little bit more yeah they the show does really bury its exposition in the dialogue characters just don't um and maybe it's because of the most of the other shows that we uh, watch and do podcasts about like but you know star trek in particular is like star trek will not let you miss the point of what the right. character is saying yeah. like they will they will look at the camera and say we have to go back down there because there's a child left behind or something but D- deadwood um the way that the characters talk it's the exposition is like just kind of laced into their general ranting about something else that's going on around yeah. it it's not yeah. that no one will ever directly comment on this is the information you need to process this. I think it was a long time ago, but like the introduction of Brom is a good example. Like Swearingen doesn't come down and say, he's not literally explaining what's going on. It's just like through their conversation, you kind of pick up on what this con is and it slowly builds over time. And it's just nice. It's mostly because we're used to Star Trek and being very blunt about it and stuff like that. But Deadwood hides things a little more realistically. Yeah, I was thinking about Star Trek when we were talking about the um the craps scam thing. Yep. Cuz I feel <laughs> I feel like that it, it it's the difference between the way they do it in this and then the way they would do a scene like that in Star Trek where they all talk about the techno babble involved and how the scam is going to be run yes. so you know yeah, yeah. when it doesn't work instead of just doing the thing, letting you figure it out and then relying on powers booth to be a good enough actor to get across the fact that he's mad that she's fucking something up yes yeah <laughs> i don't know if we'll ever even in modern star trek i'm not sure we're going to get to that point 
Man, uh, Powers Booth would have been a great admiral on Star yeah, Trek. He'd be a he'd be a great admiral, I think. He's got some good lines in this one. Um <laughs> one of Amy's personal favorites in this one is uh Al talking to Farnham, who's muttering to himself. He says, don't play that shit where you drag out the word, maybe drag the words out of you. Declare or shut the fuck up. <laughs> and he walks off. Uh, it's good. Woman lives in your fucking hotel, but you can't find pretext for pressing the offer on her claim. I can't outflank Trixie, Al. The whore guards that widow like a mother hen. She's dosed her with opium. Priming her for your approach. Be that as it may. E.B., put that offer in your pocket. You knock on the widow's door. Trixie will answer. Trixie answers. You tell her I want to talk to her. Trixie leaves. You gain entry, broach the sale. Can you circumnavigate the child, or must I map that for you, too? Oh, What? Nothing. Oh, come on in, Doc. Him and me are finished. Anyway, don't play that shit where you make me drag your words out. Do you declare or shut the fuck up? I said... Something strange is going on in that hotel room. I think a, a really great example of the writing is um, it's very early. It's when Merrick is drinking at the bar and Doherty, Dan Doherty is the bartender there. Mm-hmm. And he says something about Merrick's like, I don't know why I ever gave up drinking. I'm enjoying drinking so much right now. And Doherty says something about like, he says like it takes the edge off the rough ones, something like that. Yeah. Um, and Merrick just responds like, you are always full of pithy quotes or something like that. And then Doherty just goes, thanks. <laughs> and it's just this, um, I, don't, I always find that contrast in their dialogue funny, which is that characters will just say really sort of like interesting, profound things. And then it's immediately just like crushed under the reality of their not really knowing anything at all at the same time. Yeah. It happens all the time. I enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's a very well-written show. Um, anything else for this one? Uh, I think that's it. We also learned that Asians are the degenerate gamblers amongst all the races, according to Sites Oliver, which is another <laughs> another thing. They call them uh, celestials all the time, and it's always confusing to me because I never make that association. That's uh, a that's a weird. I don't know what choose. the I don't know what the I don't know where that reference comes from. I don't know how it how because it they're all. 800 feet high and are the secret uh, creators of humanity on earth. Is that, is that a reference? I'm not get. I, I, sorry. I, that's what the celestials are in the Marvel. Oh, Marvel okay. <laughs> it might be. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe the celestials in Marvel comics Aren't started out as just a bunch of giant Chinese guys. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure when they were created. If it was in the sixties is a solid possibility. That's what it was. We got to modernize these guys. This is just not working. In 19, this is ni- it's 1972 people. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Anything else to say about this one? Or are we done? Uh, it's weird to know that um, Brahms body's just hanging out by the river. Yeah. He's being iced. Still. Yep. You don't see it either. It's just characters talking no. about it. Yeah. I feel like he's probably getting eaten by wolves or something. Yeah. I mean, who 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 would go? I guess it would be the uh, the natives up on top of the hill are also maybe attracting all the wildlife that people are eating or the animals are eating. But yeah, you think Brown would be done by now? <clears throat> I think that's part of... I, I, I want to say that I saw or read this somewhere. I could also be completely making this up. So I'm just going to pull a chicote here yep. and say uh 
I think that part of the idea is putting the body up like that is that the the animals will eat it. Like the yeah, I would, I would hawks, think so. Hawks and vultures or stuff will eat it, and that's you know giving yep. it back to the land or whatever. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, they say they point towards the west, which would be where the sun is setting, which kind of you know my interpretation of what that thematically means yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So. Really, uh, really banking on having some crossover listeners for this episode from the Star Trek. <laughs> Yeah. podcast with the, <laughs> some of the references Chak- i've made does anyone know who chakotay is i don't think so um yeah i guess that's pretty much it for this one this one is called plague i thought there was some oh i guess just my final thing i think i i brought it up and you answered it but i guess my opinion about um religion on the show um milch is jewish He's quoting from, I don't know when Corinthians is, if that's like Old Testament or New Testament or whatever. It must be New Testament. It sounds like a Jesus-y kind of thing to say. Um, And my thing about it is that like the show is not, the show dabbles in religion quite a bit. My take on it always is that um, Milch deals less in at least in Deadwood, Milch deals less with the sense of like there is a higher power and he treats it more as religion has uh like a lot of ancient wisdoms. It has like found something true to the spirit of humanity within it. And so he he doesn't take this sort of literal or like fundamentalist approach that there is like a deity that's sort right, of guiding right. everything. But uh because you know, people like Marcus Aurelius and his meditations say basically the same thing that the Corinthians reading has, which is that we're all, how can you be cruel to others when we're all working together and like no one asks for any of this? And like it's to be mad at your neighbors the same as being mad at your foot and stuff like that. Um, and so I think that's that, why that's why you throw the whole body to the lions. Correct. You can't have a little bit just laying around. It would be like, yeah. um, uh, was there a was there a nightmare now? What's what am I thinking of the uh, possessed hand? Have you guys covered oh, a movie? Evil Dead? Maybe Evil Dead. That would that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. That, that's basically and just you know. So it, it takes the sort of ancient wisdom of old religion and inserts it on top of the show without feeling as though the Reverend Smith character is like unbearable or disconnected from reality in the sense that he is only appealing to God in a lot of... Like, it's tough to describe, but he... Smith comes across more as a believable, grounded character who just has these deeply held personal beliefs than he is a sort of, like, traveling fundamentalist preacher, you know, which is important to the show. Yeah. I take it I suffered some sort of convulsion or seizure, perhaps brought on by irregular hours. I see, and I expect you'll soon be hanging up your shingle in competition with me. Oh, oh, no, no, sir. How did you feel before the spell come on you? I noticed a peculiar smell in the air, as if something were burning. Is it first time? No, the first episode occurred several days ago, after the service for Mr. Hickok. And any others between that one and this? No. Follow my finger. Or perhaps I just need glasses. Merrick needs to see you about the article. Prescribe this malingerer a can of peaches and show him the fucking door. 
Yeah, I his his characterization continues to be uh, <clears throat> really unique um, in that it's both, I think, purposefully over the top and ridiculous. Yeah, and and he's crazy. Um, yeah, crazy a little bit as we've talked about too. Yeah, but also extremely earnest. Yes, and it it works together really well for some reason yeah i feel like the characters are um starting to get past his earnestness too like it, it was uncomfortable at the beginning but i feel that people now sort of are more used to the reverend and how he talks yeah. and things like that like i think it would be really easy to to make him a much more cynical character you know yes um cynically characterized character um where you could you play him as clearly he's a a bullshit artist or something or, or people, you know, you know, they, yeah, they give or him- just the plague is counteracting, you know, the plague could easily have been played as a counteraction to what he is preaching about the, the, you know, the sort of like higher, higher calling that's coming to this town, which is that like, yeah. you know, the, the plague is biblical in and of itself, but you could see it being more contradictory to Smith than what it is. But Smith has played more as he's dealing with this in the same way that everyone has to deal with their struggles and stuff like yeah. that and yeah. yeah he they they don't they could very easily play the plague off to the reverend as uh the, the reverend going off about the plague being god's plan yeah representative but, of something yeah yeah but what they choose to do is he rejoices in the fact that god has put him there to help right you know and that's a very inter- that's a very interesting distinction to make and it makes him a much more uh complex character i think yeah a little bit more um if not nuanced a little bit more just uh, like aligned with something that yeah. the show would say yeah i i liked edward just um you know in comparison to its uh other tv shows of the time which are mu- generally much more cynical about humanity like the well wire's not cynical about humanity the wire's cynical about like sort of the institutions and stuff that we create, but uh, Sopranos is very cynical about people. Mm. Um, Deadwood is like startlingly optimistic in a lot of ways. Uh, And I I think that that's what I like about it. We've talked about it at the beginning of the podcast and everything, but I I think it balances that um, as I get older, the positivity is like more important than the cynicism in a lot of ways. And not like, not like ignorant or like happiness or anything like that, but just like a there is not dumb shit. No, not that dumb shit. Like just open a can of peaches, basically, is my whole thing, and just go at them. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's like how did you describe it? Deadwood is just Deadwood sees that in all the tragedy there is still rebirth constantly. Um, which I think the wire touches on too, but it's like there, there is always this sort of like moving forward momentum and overcoming challenges and not just buckling to the challenges. And that's like the, the, that's important to the human spirit is what the show seems to believe. Yeah. You know, kind of going back on, on what I talked about a little bit in the last episode is I think it's the difference between how this treats sort of the end of the West versus the way most other things treat the end of the West, which is usually from the point of view of the cowboy character and like the end of the West just means the end of him. Yeah. A lifestyle is eradicated basically or like a, yeah, a way of being. Yeah. And you know, it's supposed to be like bittersweet or something. And and in this, I think they, they really draw an interesting contrast because 
Bullock is that character, right? Bullock is the one who, even though he is set up to be this lawman or whatever, he's very much the cowboy type character. Yeah. And I mean, in this episode, he's off on a blood vendetta yeah. <laughs> to get revenge. Yeah. You know, like he's Josie Wales or something. And everybody else who's still in the town is thinking like years ahead. Like right. they, everybody else who's, everyone who's at that meeting, except maybe Farnham, uh, is, knows that there is, it's, things are always going to keep moving. Right. And always going to be uh, progressing. And I think Bullock is the one who's, who's in, in danger of being left behind. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's overcome by a, a deadly sin, wrath, right? Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's even more of a sort of the analogy there, which is that, um, he is blinded to the potential of things. Although I, I, he seems to realize he, he does develop in this episode, I guess, after he, you know, gets picked up by Charlie and buries the, the native and everything like that. He, he feel things feel like it's going to be different for Bullock after this episode, potentially, at least he's going home. Um, are they going home or are they going, going, they're going after McCall, right? Oh, they're going after McCall. That's right. Yeah. Charlie, Charlie's coming back from Cheyenne, but I guess they're going to go to wherever McCall went. However, they're going to track him down. Um, odds do you think it was um, last question before we go both Bullock and Charlie are traveling by themselves does that seem appropriate in this in this area or this history uh, of stuff I, I, Char- I would expect people to be going in groups of like 20 people everywhere yeah. they go Charlie is coming back from Cheyenne with two horses yep loaded and with shit, like though. loaded, loaded with, with gear and he's like <laughs> Al sent out three guys to kill a family for yeah. for stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got to be secure. Charlie, Charlie's just the the most badass motherfucker on the I show. Guess. He's just killing I guess everybody. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's got like sewn into the back of his second horse. My other horse is a gun or something. I don't know. <laughs> and I, I actually don't know the reality keep, of keep honking. I'm reloading. Just... <laughs> sewn into the ass of the branded on the ass of his second horse he's got the the pulp fiction badass motherfucker wallet just <laughs> sashayed into his uh saddlebag uh i actually don't know i wonder about how uh native american tribes moved around whether or not they actually operated my the sense from like movies and stuff and pop culture is that indians or natives tended to always um sort of be by themselves for whatever reason, but that can't be mm-hmm. the case. I wouldn't think they must've been traveling in groups. I would assume so. Yeah. I have, I have, uh, I can't, I can't Chicote my, my way out of that one. But. No. Well, let's all think about Robert Beltran's ass and just move on to the next episode. This is plague. It was the sixth episode of Deadwood. Thanks everybody for listening. If you enjoyed the content, patreon.com slash the Penske files, the best way to support the show. Even if you're listening to this two years in the future, you can reward us posthumously by going there and dropping a couple little notes. Posthumously. Yeah. I'm Merrick. My name is A.W. Merrick. Um, that's it. Is this show going to end in like a murder-suicide? <laughs> <laughs> what was the word I was looking for? Post? Uh, I guess I guess technically that would Well, the show will be dead, a, right? Yeah. The show will be over, and people could still be listening into it. Yeah, I guess that works in a morbid kind of way. We'll be all right. We'll be all right. We won't be like that horse going down with one arrow. We'll be, we'll be surviving. Uh, that's it. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? 
Uh, check out Rotten Horror Picture Show, horror movie podcast with myself and co-host Amanda. Uh, and on Patreon, we're doing video nasties this year. Uh, January was Dario Argento's Tenebrae. February is uh, Possession, starring Sam Neill uh, and Isabella Johnny, which is a pretty intense movie. And uh, yeah, we got Badass Podcast, where, where we talk about Batman the Animated Series. We got all sorts of fun stuff, so check it out. That's it. We're going to be back with the next episode as we move into the second half of the first season of Deadwood. It's called Bullock Returns to the Camp. So we'll <laughs> well, see what's what, that one about. We'll see, we'll see what happens in that episode. It's mysterious. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you later.